Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found. Welcome back, folks. Today, we have a conversation with someone who I feel is a true innovator in the counseling field. And our topic is embodied recovery for eating disorders. We'll be exploring how embodiment weaves together attachment theory, polyvagal theory, and ecological models of identity, and how these theories apply to disordered eating behaviors. What I love about this approach is, for one, it's truly intersectional. It's just built into the bones of this approach to explore the way identity and privilege and oppression overlap. And two, it offers a real distinct path, uh, as opposed to CBT models that are grounded in deficit and pathology. Embodied recovery really frames disordered eating behaviors as mechanisms of survival, not just dysfunction. Uh, So I'm really excited about this conversation. Let's jump into our discussion with Embodied Recovery co-discoverer, Rachel Lewis Marlowe. And to have this, what I imagine will be a complex and very nerdy conversation, I am very excited to be joined by Rachel Lewis Marlowe. Rachel is the director of the Embodied Recovery Institute, which provides training to interdisciplinary eating disorders treatment teams in trauma-informed, attachment-based, and somatically integrative approaches to eating disorders recovery. Rachel is a somatically integrative psychotherapist certified in sensory motor psychotherapy. She's also a licensed bodywork and massage therapist with advanced training and 30-plus years of experience in diverse somatic therapies. Rachel has extensive experience as a teacher and presenter, focusing on accessing the body's unique capacity to give voice to the subconscious and to lay the foundation for healing and maintaining psychological and physical health. In her private practice in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Rachel specializes in working with people exploring recovery from trauma, eating disorders, and dissociative disorders, which I hope we also maybe dive into dissociative disorders a bit, because I feel like that's an area that brings up a lot of feelings for clinicians. Um, So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Wow, that was quite a description. You do a lot, apparently. Were you aware that you're very busy? More still reeling from what you said we were going to cover today. (laughs) Like, that's a beautiful conversation. I'd love to hear it. All Um, right. We should talk to someone about that. We can talk to someone about that. So, um, yeah, I I mean, I, I... have confidence that we will get to that, but um, I'm not exactly sure, you know, where we're starting. It's not, it seems like a big mountain to climb, but I know that we're on that mountain and we'll take it one step at a time. We can only, and if we don't make the whole mountain today, then maybe we finish the mountain some other time with another episode, which is also fine by me. That I can feel my nervous system kind of settling. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm also very excited because um, I've had a couple of guests on the show or people who have interfaced with the show in some way, and their name, your name is in their mouth. Like they are all about your training and your approach. Uh, So I'm very excited to hear to hear your original theories, it sounds like, which is amazing. Well, I thank you. I mean, it it means a lot to me that 
that what I've been able to share from, you know, my little quirky perspective has been of value to people. That is just such a reparative experience. Um, <laughs> um, and, and while, you know, I think the originality is that I'm doing it in this moment. So, right. But it's not that I'm the only one who's ever done it. And I'd like to keep that in the context of um, of the conversation because I think I think it's important. It's part of what connects us to the greater truths that we're trying to articulate. Is that um, just because I I think I like to start with this is that um, there's a difference between discovering and creating. Mm, say more. Well, just because I've discovered something doesn't mean I created it. And just because I've discovered it doesn't mean somebody else hasn't discovered it. It's that, you know, like every baby discovers their fingers. But as a, as a parent of an infant, I discovered their fingers too. My discovery of their fingers and their discovery of their fingers, totally different experiences. And neither one of us can say, well, I created that. I may have had a part in that creation, but I don't own it. And I think that's really important. Discovery is not the same as creation and articulating something is not the same as owning it. And that, that is a big thing for me. Um, as I interact with the way people have articulated what they have discovered, you know, it's not just because I wrote it down doesn't mean I own it. And I think it's important, you know, be, in part because teaching is supporting somebody's discovery of something that in many ways they already know. So I can't claim ownership of it if I'm actually helping somebody discover, if I'm supporting their discovery process. I think this actually gets very much into the relationship between embodiment and empowerment. Yes. Well, I love that frame, you know, that we're, exploring something that is already a part of consciousness that is already a part of systems. And, uh, I think that is such a unique uh, approach in the context of psychotherapy, which I think is so informed by individualism and competition and just all the icky things that, uh, really silo it from being effective for more than one type of person. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to, to land in that. Because if I don't land there, then the way I engage in conversation after that is is just, um, it's more exhausting. Yeah, yeah. And I think probably because what I feel like you're already doing is modeling your approach, you know, by sort of naming what you, how things land in your body. And so I'm so excited for folks not only to sort of hear it intellectually, but I imagine are also just going to to feel it happening for real and in real time. Yeah. Okay. We have set some big expectations. So let's jump in. So let's just start with kind of the basics, if there are basics, you know, for this approach. So can you just start by uh, sharing what is embodied recovery and how did you come to your discovery of this approach when it comes to eating disorders and trauma? So embodied recovery for eating disorders, I would say is a paradigm. It's not a technique. It's a paradigm or approach. It's a lens that is the result of weaving together 
um, a number of different maps, um, different lenses to, um, to just how we see what is going on when someone is, is coming and what we are identifying as oh, they have an eating disorder. It's like, well, okay, well, what is that? Right. So it's, it's a lens. And I think it's a lens that basically turns what we're seeing a little bit like 180. We're looking at it from a really different angle. And that gives us new options for how to, how to interact with someone who is navigating the world and is organized in a way that is disrupting their relationship with food and taking in nutrition and being nourished. That's sort of, you know, it's a paradigm to say, right? How it came to be was that it was a synthesis of both my own experiences with organizing through movement. I mean, I was, my training initially, I've been weaving movement, dance, touch, psychology. I've been weaving them my entire life, those two studies. And, um, And in some ways it's been a right brain, left brain, you know, back and forth kind of thing. And so there's this way in which I, you know, finally came to the middle. And sometimes I call it like living on the bridge. You know, I'm not, I'm not crossing the bridge anymore. I'm living there and extending to both sides, which is really nice. I, and, and the other thing I have to mention is that this was a synthesis of my experiences, but then my, my um, co-founder of the Institute, who's Paula Scatoloni, she was also doing this weaving, right? So I was doing a weaving through coming from body work movement. Then I went and I got my master's in, um, in counseling and did my sensory motor training, which really helped me build the bridge and find a home in it. And Paula was coming from, um, she had been working with eating disorders from a long, for a long time. She was more started more um, with the credential of therapist and then went into somatic experiencing. And that was, you know, as well as bringing in her movement background. Um, so, we were we brought our ideas together because we both really wanted to say we we got to look at this from a different place right so we've done we did over the years a lot of conversations and back and forth um with that which gave rise to the articulation of the principles of embodied recovery for eating disorders and there are four principles one of our first our first principle is that Normally, eating disorders are talked about as a a biopsychosocial disorder. And there's a recognition that that there are things that are going on in all of these three domains. We are expanding the, the body part of it, not just looking at genetic predisposition or how to engage with the body through psychopharmacology, there's been some more increase in terms of like, oh, well, yoga is important and that helps. But we're really emphasizing the bottom-up processes and what is the what is the somatic scaffold for normative eating? Because so often we're asking people to engage in a 
frontal cortex organization or a gross motor movement behavior without the support of the um, of the body underneath, right? Of the reflexes of the cellular organization of the posture and of the relational, um, the relational truth to support a different cognition, right? Right. So we're really looking at how do we learn who we are as individuals? We learn that in the context of our relationship first, right? And, and that is happening. We learn that long before we have a frontal cortex. We learn truths about self and the world around us first through a sensory motor process. So we are expanding the role that the body plays in recovery, in growing and healing. Okay, so that's our first principle is that this is a somatopsychosocial model. You know, we're playing with words. The second thing that we're, we're shifting with is that recovery, rather than being seen as the elimination of certain kinds of behaviors, there's one thing we, we see behavior as a, an additive process. This is what we are adding, not what we're taking away. And the thing that we're primarily adding is we're adding embodiment that, that recovery is a pro, about addition, increasing your embodiment of particular aspects of our humanity, our physical humanity. Rather than this is about behavior, behave, just behavior change. It's not just about getting food in the pie hole and keeping it there, right? It's about how are you embodied, which gets into the dissociation and we can get there, right? Um, but we also have a real concrete working definition of what are we talking about with embodiment? Because everyone right now, embodiment is the word. It super is super hip. Yeah. It is super hip. And I will say, you know, I've been using that word for a long time. <laughs> so, um, um, you know, it actually came from a group I, I started running back in um, when I was working in a treatment center a while ago. And now it's everywhere, which is fine. But it means so many different things to so many different people. For us, we're talking about the process of one, this intersection of, of, of our consciousness and our physical form. Mm. that's what embodiment is. And, 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 and when we think about that, there are steps, concrete steps to it relative to becoming more spacious in our form and more spacious in our consciousness. I'm assuming when you say consciousness, that is also a more expansive way of thinking that you're thinking of it in a more expansive way than just what our prefrontal cortices are capable right. of. What right? I would say that cognition is the language that consciousness speaks, but it is not consciousness. Okay, I knew I was going to have to get a notebook to like write down some things. Okay, well, and and I mean that gets to like the power of narrative, right? And that when we change narrative, we change consciousness. We have the capacity to change consciousness. When we change consciousness, 
in or we have to be willing to change the narrative. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's, you know, we can get locked in and that impacts embodiment, right? Because the more narrow your consciousness is, the more rigid your narrative is, the less there's intersection, right? So if I have a thin line. Even if it's, it's intersecting with a thick line, I still only have a thin line of intersection. So, you know, what are the things we do to increase consciousness? A lot of it is, is mindfulness, right? That expansive, non-judgmental, in the moment, right? You know, but what are we mindfully aware of? Well, right? So the process of embodiment is bringing that mindful awareness to the body itself, and then becoming not just aware of our bodies, but from our bodies. Mm. We become aware of the world around us, not just through the narrative, but through the quality of sensory input mm-hmm. and, and through the sensory motor system. So the sensory motor system has to do with both how we take information into the brain, whether it's coming from the outside or the inside. We have internal senses, we have external senses. But then also, what is our motor response to that input, right? All of that gets into embodiment and is impacted by whether what we are, what is the stimulus that we are sensing? Is that perceived as safe, something to connect to? Or dangerous, something that we need to disconnect to? Mm -hmm. Or disconnect from, sorry, right? And so right there is this triangle of our attachment system connecting our defense system disconnecting and our sensory motor system perception and response. Mm. And those three work together to inform how we interact with our world and how we develop a sense of self. That's a lot. Like right there was a huge chunk (laughs) Well, but I mean, so many cogs are trying to click into place around what you're naming. I mean, so I'll just kind of throw out some of the things that show up. I mean, one, I think is just how powerful it is to conceptualize any sort of psychological distress as requiring a bottom up approach rather than just a cognitive shift approach. I mean, I think it just makes so much sense. Um, just thinking about, you know, how, yes, CBT, uh, and it's, you know, kind of third wave counterparts, um, have something to offer in terms of, you know, maybe shifting a narrative a bit in, uh, maybe just demonstrating that the narrative can shift and just with longer term clients, it's like, it just, it peters out in terms of its staying power. Uh, Right. Well, I think the thing is we can invite people to rearrange words on a page, 
right? We can say in this sentence, rather than saying, I don't deserve, you say, I do deserve, right? Those are just shifting words around. But to be able to truly imagine something, we are rearranging concepts and experiences we've had. Mm-hmm. Right? So I can imagine a purple flying elephant because I have a felt, I have a real experience with purple. I have an experience with flying and I have an experience with elephant, right? So I can rearrange them and I can put that into imagination. But for somebody who has never had a real experience with safety. Worthiness. Right? Like you don't have to, um, your, your, your sense of belonging isn't, doesn't, isn't earned by your achievement, right? If people don't have a felt sense that they can connect back to and they don't, they don't know like what that is, they can't identify it, then, then those affirmations are not embodied affirmations. They're, they're thoughts, but they, they become more finger-wagging thoughts than they are, oh, wait, I know what that is. Even if I can only land on it for a second, oh, no, I remember that feeling. So we have to be able to support someone coming into the somatic organization of worthiness or of belonging and and say which goes with this this capacity of, of what we might call yielding not submitting not not collapsing but relational yield if they don't have a cellular sensory motor experience of that there's no way for them to pair that with the word belonging and and for it to be an embodied truth and I, it's so interesting i love how embodied captures the like the real integration of some of those narrative shifts um and it i mean it just brings to mind how many clients you know i think very wisely when called to do affirmations would say yeah but how do i make myself believe it right oh i know it here but i don't Right. In some ways, we can. That is a great segue to sort of this third principle of embodied recovery for eating disorders. Although this applies to other things, right? This is you know, embodied recovery for nourishment disorders. We might I'll just coin that. You know, like life. But most of life is is, you know, is a nourishment disorder, <laughs> right? Um, so, um, which is that. Are the symptoms, the behaviors are not a, a problem to be solved or something to be eliminated. They are the bodies, and it's not a coping strategy. It's a an expression. It's a way the body is trying to tell us what is the state of embodiment? Am I embodying fear? Am I embodying safety? Am I embodying protection, connection? Am I embodying is the way my body is organized based on an experience of, of under-supported 
impulses to connect or 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 impulses to connect that have have been have hit an obstacle right have, have contacted danger and have to pull back right and this is attachment we're talking about attachment injury right and and attachment trauma so if we're thinking about the some of the specific eating disorder behaviors you know maybe it's restriction maybe it's over exercising um can you say a little bit, maybe take a couple of those sort of DSM quality type symptoms? How, what are they, are they usually expressing similar things? So like if someone is restricting and this other person is restricting, are, is restriction sort of at all like a universal expression of a particular experience? Okay. It's all, it's going to be very, no, that's a great question. Before we get to that, let me bounce back for a moment to some of the things we identify that impact embodiment. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Because I think that, that it gets, because basically what we're saying is that the eating disorder behaviors give, if once we start to understand the language of the body, we can start to decode like, you know, so that, yeah, restriction isn't the same thing for everybody. You know, when we talk about like people being able to be embodied in that spacious way, right. Where, they're, they're embodying an ability to engage in the world here on this earth plane effectively. And that doesn't mean just, you know, oh, everything is all safe and wonderful, right? Because that's just bypass. Mm -hmm. you know, are, but they can actually stay in their bodies when they come up against an obstacle or a threat. And they can respond effectively and return to a state, a place of safety. Mm -hmm. That is that's the cr critical thing is not have I experienced a sense of danger? It's have I survived that danger and returned to safety? Anybody who's come into your office has survived the danger, but mm -hmm. what they haven't done is returned to safety. Mm. Now they may not have ever started in safety. So we got some work to do. And, and that's why, addressing the attachment system is so important because attachment safety is not the same as protection. Mm. And a lot of times people will say, I feel safe when what they're feeling is protected. They are separated from danger, but they haven't necessarily connected with something resonant, supportive, and nourishing and nurturing. Okay, so safety is that space being connected to nourishment. Protection is, I don't see danger. Protection, right. Protection, defense allows me to separate. Attachment allows me to connect to safety. Now, people may want to use different words. That's fine. I don't care what you call it. It's just we have to make that differentiation. Yeah, very important distinction. Mm -hmm. Right. So the things that can impact someone's embodiment of, of connecting to safety and therefore efficacy in their world can be so many things, right? It can start in their prenatal experience, pre, in their conception and prenatal experience. Is that soul that's coming into carnation greeted by, in, you know, something that is joyful, <laughs> wanted, mm -hmm. right? We're starting like right away. What's the, what's the amniotic fluid 
environment because the amount of cortisol in the amnion impacts how the cells of the fetus organize. Which feels like you just named like the pathway of intergenerational trauma. Yep. We've got it. You know, it can start there and it can go, you know, to any experience we have through the lifetime, including, you know, so there's injuries to the, from our attachment figures, like is the thing that we need to connect to for nourishment available? Can I get to it? And there's a whole there's a whole series of, of things that inform our attachment system, you know, our attachment scaffold. And I think that the place where we're, when we're talking about one of the things you talked about at the beginning was um, the difference between our individual self and our collective self, our individual attachment figure and the collective attachment. And this is so injuries to the attachment can come on a an energetic, a cellular level, right? If, you know, the biological environment through with with regardless of the intention, this can be a very, you know, wanted wanted soul to come in and there can still be challenges, right? I've worked with people who were conceived in wartime or at soon after conception, the birth mothers um, birth parent um, lost lost a significant other, and so all of a sudden, what you've got running through that baby's environment is grief. Mm. And their life force is coming in, but grief is is greeting them. So it can be on that level, but it can also be on an on a on a societal level. If my Collective identity as, I mean, I can speak to some of my own collective identities. Like, let's say as, um, I'm going to do something that's pretty, as someone who's left-handed, right? Okay. Now, for many people, that, you know, whatever. But every time... I go to, you know, turn a doorknob or cut scissors or use a friggin' bread knife, right? <laughs> right? And those are produced by, you know, entities I, I don't have anything to do with, right? So even within my family, my left-handedness may be like, fine, I was allowed to write with my left hand, unlike my aunt, who was of a generation where she couldn't, right? Mm -hmm. um, but... When I go out into the world, the institutions that I depend on for access to resources, like a bread knife, don't support me. Like I don't exist. It's not, I'm not, I'm not branded as a witch anymore. Anymore. But so it's not that danger, but it's under-supported, which is a neglect, right? So it's not abuse, but it's neglect. Mm. And so my collective identity as someone who's left-handed is impacted. Now you take that, like that just is a way of illustrating it. It's pretty benign. I've managed to create a sense of 
superiority associated with my marginalization, knowing that, you know, it means that I'm very creative in my right brain and blah, 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 blah. You know, I, I, I can talk myself into that, which is, you know, fine. But if my collective identity was a person of color, where I am greeted with abuse as well as neglect for, right? It's a whole other thing. And there are institutions that we rely on that, you know, like banks to get loans, you know, black farmers don't get financing. You know, like we can go on and on and on. All of that is impacting our attachment system because it has to do with, can I connect with this source of nourishment? Hmm. You know, a bank is a source of nourishment. <laughs> it's a collective identity. It's an institutional identity. But I'm not seen as an individual by that bank. I am seen as part of my collective identity. So that impacts my, my individual nervous system, right? Just as individual cells in my body are impacted by what my whole body does. Mm -hmm. So does it feel like we can say attachment is the quality of nourishment? I would, I think we can nuance it a little bit, maybe, which would be that attachment is the, is how we connect with nourishment. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like, right how we connect and yeah, how, how we connect and, and take in nourishment is our attachments, right? The quality of what we connect to and how our actions to connect and take in are supported impacts the organization of our attachment system. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so if taking in food is one way that we go through these movements of attachment. We have animal instincts, animal, you know, behaviors that are attachment behaviors. We have, just like we have animal defenses, we have animal attachments. Whatever the rules are for connecting with nourishment, whether that nourishment is love, touch, sound, smell, any way energy is brought to us, whatever those rules are about what we're allowed to reach for, how we're allowed to reach for it, what we're allowed to press into, what we're allowed to rest with, what we're allowed to grab hold of and pull in close, right? Those are our attachment movements, this expanding into some, to relationship and taking it in and this resting. Whatever the rules are, are show up with our relationship with food. And that's why it's not just, am I restricting or not? It's what is, what, when in this whole cycle of, of the attachment system, when is that attachment system truncated? What parts of the attachment process are not fully embodied? Mm. Okay. Does that make sense? I, I think so. So what I'm hearing is, and so you can correct me. <laughs> um, 
I'm hearing that if we're thinking about restriction, then we can name that maybe what is consistent across restriction is some shortened, some stopped experience or channel of nourishment. And what will be specific to the person is which, you know, what type, where it came from. Okay. Right. And so we, we have a very concrete model of looking at this, something we call the action cycle. It breaks down any kind of action into four different stages that are supported by these attachment movements and, and, and um, dynamics, I would say attachment dynamics, but to bring it real concrete restriction could be that um, I'm restricting because I truly don't know that I'm hungry. I like really, I'm not getting signals. So it's something in the, not just the attachment system, but the sensory processing system. Like, I don't know. It could be, I know I'm hungry, but my relationship with wanting and being able to reach for what I want, that has been truncated. So I'm only allowed to want what someone tells me. You know, there's a lot of shoulds, what I should or I shouldn't. And we get that, you know, from lots of different, you know, lots of different places where that dynamic of, can I am allowed to reach for what I want? If I'm not allowed to reach for what I want, then I may be taking in something I don't want. And I may be like, no, I don't want that. I can't, right? Maybe um, I, I'm allowed to reach for what I can prepare the meal. I can select it. I can prepare the food and it's all there. But that place of, of, of actually taking in what I need and grabbing hold, that ingestion process that's about grasping and connecting, really like adhering <laughs> to what I need. If, 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 if I haven't, if, if what I've needed hasn't come to me and landed in my hand in a way that I can grasp, grasp it, I may be rejecting because I, I, I can't connect with, with my needs. My relationship with needs is, is, is unformed or, you know, is injured. Yeah. Or maybe I, maybe I can, I can grab hold of it, but I can't actually take it in. Like I can't let something into the vulnerable place inside that un and vulnerability being unprotected, not necessarily in danger, but I can't be unprotected in relationship with something that's not me. Right. So maybe I can, you know, maybe I'm chewing and spitting, but I'm not. Or maybe I'm taking it and I'm purging because I can't take it all the way in. Maybe I don't know how to stop and experience enough. Like I have to keep, I have to produce, I have to achieve in order to belong. And there's never enough. I like being just resting isn't okay. It's not seen as productive, right? So I can't stop. I can't, it's not okay to finish something. And for some people, if I, they can't finish it perfectly, they aren't going to even start. Why start? I'm not going to be able to do that. Right? So you can see 
all of those things could end up as restriction. But they have really different things going on. And because if we can start to listen to the, the language of the body, the way it speaks through internal sensations, through how our five sense perception orients, and through our movements, movement is the language of relationship. We can start to understand the body's language. We can start to decode what's going on. What is the body expressing? What is it saying through these behaviors? Yeah, I'm thinking, so I have this like sense of if I'm kind of cut off from my physical experience and, you know, and from embodiment. And then part of the work is to understand how this particular behavior restriction connects to nourishment, attachment, my body. Like, is it hard for folks who are active in their eating disorder to connect with? So I think my experience has been in many ways, no. In many ways, when someone says, oh, it's almost like your body's trying to tell us something, huh? They go, oh. Finally. Finally. The wisdom is there. The knowledge is there. Yeah, yes. It's like when they're given accurate language to describe what their body is saying, the congruency, they go, that makes sense. They go, oh, that makes sense. And it lifts the shame off. It lifts this the, 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 the fear of, of what's happening off, right? Because so often what their body is saying is, I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared either because mostly... <laughs> I am scared because I can't find safety. I can't connect to safety. Yes, something scary happened. You know, maybe there was an assault or maybe there was a series of assaults, right? That is not what creates an eating disorder. It's the deficiency in the ability to orient to safety that interrupts our ability to have bottom-up support for digestion and normative eating. And that's where polyvagal theory comes in, right? It beautifully describes the link between how we take in, how we sense environmental safety and how we organize through the vagus nerve in our digestive system. And it makes sense with, you know, as mammals, if you don't have a safe relationship, you do not su survive. Mm -hmm. We we have to have a safe other in order to be nourished. We are not we aren't reptiles, right? We have to nurse or be fed by somebody who at least cares enough to feed us. Mm -hmm. But the question is is that you know it's like is this is what's coming in just enough to keep me from from dying, or is it coming up in with enough nourishment to help me thrive? Mm. You know, like how much nourishment can I take in? 
oh, I know how to take it. You know, nourishment is about me actually thriving. So thinking about, you know, someone who is carrying intergenerational trauma around, you know, maybe it's a racial identity. I mean, that feels like kind of the most visceral um, in our society. So is it possible for someone to basically have zero framework for safety? Or is that just kind of inherent, but possibly just very well buried? If they're alive, somewhere there was an experience of connection. Mm. And I say that because our first act as human beings is to connect. It is the most inherent drive we have. Without it, there is no human being. Whether it is the sperm connecting with the ovum or the fertilized ovum orienting to the to the side of the uterine wall. And what's so cool, I love this, is that that ovum comes, lands on the uterine wall, and then it rotates and orients so that the part of the fertilized um, ovum that forms the, the placenta and the umbilicus faces the uterine wall, right? So when I say our first drive is connection, there has to be something there or Life isn't sustained. Now, it's it's you know the, what's the ratio though, right? What's the ratio? But if someone is coming into our office, there's something that is trying to emerge. There's some part of health and connectivity that got them there, right? And our job, I I believe as providers is is to find it, to see it, to always orient to it. Know that it is held in the context, and that's the authentic humanity of that person. It is held in the context of, of an injured experience and a protective experience. And we're going to work all three of those in different ways. But it's got to, we've got to, it's got to be there, and our job is... It's like it may be the tiniest little spark of a flame. Our job is to gently feed that fire. Not too much, too fast, so that it, right? But just enough that it starts to grow. So at the same time, we're, we're working with, you know, these these behaviors that have, have developed from that, from, you know, to protect defensive strategies. And that's a lot of what the eating disorder behaviors are. It's like, you know, left alone, this is the best I could come up with. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like the body expressing how it's been, it's been recruited to protect rather than to connect. I'm, I'm connecting now with what a game changer it is to think about connection and safety as an embodied experience, you know, because I've certainly found myself working with trauma clients, trying to find that one remembered cognitive 
experience of safety and it's nowhere to be found. It's nowhere to be found. Right. And this is where the provider's own organization is so imperative because our clients will have a felt sense of whether or not we are regulated. They may or may not be able to orient to it, right? I mean, there's like a lot, people can come with like tremendous amounts of attachment trauma. So, but, but there's something that, that can smell, smell it, right? And it has to do with our own level of organization and, re- and regulation. Mm-hmm. It's not what we say. It's not the words. It's not the narrative. And me saying I'm safe is like whatever. They have to f- sense it. And then back to, I think, one of your other questions, like how do we work with it? Is Part of it is helping them start to trust what they are feeling, what they are sensing, because so much of attachment injury goes along with someone's experience being mislabeled, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? You're being told, oh, you're too sensitive. Oh, there's nothing there. Or, you know, like gaslighting. And right. you know, it's like, wait a minute, I may not know. And so when I'm working with people, if they're like, you know, what's going on? And they, especially if they're really focused on me, like, are you okay? Are you okay? We can pathologize that. Or we can say, huh, you're sensing something. I wonder what it is you're sensing. Let me check in and see. Yeah, no, I think I'm okay. But I'm, but you must be picking up on something. Mm. I wonder what it is you're picking up on. It may be something internal. It may be something external. But people who develop, I mean, people who are energetically sensitive, often have attachment injury because what they are relating to has not been validated by their attachment figures. They can mm-hmm. be told they're crazy. There's nothing there. They're to this they're, you know, so as opposed to this superpower being supported and honed with skills and right. It just runs crazy inside of them. Which feels like that also speaks to the the systems aspect of it, right? Because if I'm a highly sensitive person and I'm having experiences that my system, you know, parents, family, caregivers, other systems, they don't have the embodiment to tolerate. They don't have the embodiment to experience notice or name. Then I'm going to get shut down because my system doesn't have the bandwidth. Right. And what if we take that into either a, a transgenerational or a cultural, a marginalized community, right? Let's say LGBTQIA, right? Which is basically saying, you know, this is my way of being in the world. This is how I love. What an, I mean, like that's my superpower is love. And this is how I do it. And if the attachment system of, let's say, my faith community tells me the way I love is wrong and doesn't teach me. I mean, sometimes it's like the the injury is what you, what you want is wrong and evil and bad, right? Who you are is wrong. There's that. Or it's okay to be who you are. Just don't actually ever express it. Well, that's a whole other thing, you know, 
And sometimes it's not that it's bad, but there's no one to teach me how. There's like, I can, I know how to be heterosexual because there's like, you know, guidebooks everywhere, although some of those are pretty messed up too. But, um, <laughs> you know, but no one's teaching me how, how to be gay. Mm-hmm. And so here's this capacity that's there, but I don't know what to do with it. Mm. Right. So, you know, that's, you know, we're talking on an individual or, or a collective identity. Mm-hmm. Did that make sense? Yeah. So I, I think we're at the fourth principle. So the fourth principle is that the body itself is a resource to recovery. It's not something that people have to manage their relationship with or overcome. Body image isn't the, the last thing, you know, that we deal with. We recognize, wait, the body is a resource in your recovery. It is giving you signals and it, and in order for it to be a resource, we have to resource the body in its way of, of, of being resourced. And we can say, well, you know, food is a resource to the body, which is true, but it is a very complex resource. Their eating is a very complicated behavior and requires a lot of organization and energy in order to, I mean, just think like, you know, on a hard day after a day, do you want to like prepare a meal? You know, it's like, it's, it's work. It's work to take in food. So sometimes you know, these systems, especially if these patterns started really, really early, they need to be nourished through sound, through touch, through smell, through movement. You know, we have to nourish the body to regulate the nervous system, to be able to engage and handle any kind of sympathetic activation which we have to have in order we have eating is sympathetic and then parasympathetic like every bite we take just like every breath we have every breath is sympathetic and parasympathetic sympathetic and parasympathetic and it's the ventral vagal system that helps us hold those things in coordination and balance so in safety those, those two systems really work in harmony, support each other. When we're out of safety, when we aren't oriented to safety, they go into survival, you know, disorganization, mm-hmm. right? And so just diff- different kinds of activation. That's right. So in order for that system to have capacity for, for nourishment, and the process of change and growth, right? We, we have to nourish the body through many different ways. And this is another place where understanding the sensory processing system is important. Understanding somatic interventions that like, you know, where does mindful movement come in? Yoga, Nia, Tai Chi, authentic movement. You know, it could be... Um, Taekwondo, it could be skiing, it could be, you know, it can be any, any movement, surfing can be, if it's mindful, if, if we're actually embodied movement, as opposed to disembodied movement, Mm. right? Like we're overriding our body's signals to keep going, 
versus, oh no, I'm really engaged, right? How do we, how do we feed it through our other sense, you know, aromatherapy, acupuncture, Reiki, polarity, sound healing, you know, there's all of these other ways that we may want to address what the body needs to help build the capacity for to take in nourishment. So that's the fourth principle is the body is a resource. Let's look at all the different ways to resource that body, that particular body. I wonder if we can zoom out for a minute. A question that showed up, just how many levels and layers there are, right? So down to the cellular experience, but so in naming that, you know, there's the, the physical cellular energetic experience of the body. There's, you know, the attachment based aspect. There are these, what sound like very fundamental pieces, fundamental to human experience in this framework. My understanding is that eating disorder is a relatively Eurocentric and first world expression. So it's like one study I saw that's, you know, super old at this point is that, you know, it wasn't until Western television came to a certain remote part of Indonesia that people started to express eating disorder, disordered eating behavior. What is there something specific about this culture that manifests those disconnections and that disembodiment as eating disorder versus something else? Well, I think we can, there are a number of different things that we could hypothesize. Uh, one is that has to do with our sense of self, right? That in order to take something in as nourishment, there has to be, you know, a sense of self and a sense of internal spaciousness to take something in. Now, when you're bringing in television, right? Television is, or, you know, media, right? It's, it's a way of holding narrative and, and, and narrative around worth and what is, you know, is valued, but it's coming through channels of our hearing and our sight and it's external. And those are our senses that are not designed to tell us about self, but to tell us about other. And so that already is throwing off our sensory processing system. I cannot, and that's like me trying to like, you know, where, who am I based on, well, I know what you are. I know what you are. I know what you are. How do I compare to that as opposed to through my proprioception, through my interoception, through my vestibular, these are, these, this is sensory input that tells me about me and helps me organize my nervous system. It's the balance of the near and the far senses that helps organize my nervous system. So when, and also when you're starting to watch television, it's not just what you're doing, it's what you're not doing. Right. Mm. And so what we start to have is a sensory system that is malnourished. And when we talk about, you know, what was going on during the pandemic and the rise in eating disorders and anxiety and nervous base, you know, and depression, all of these things that have its root in, in, in a dysregulated nervous system. Well, we're also talking about people like, you know, <laughs> nations that are sensory deprived. 
and and that the source of nourishment is potentially the source of danger. So everybody's nervous system is organized around a disorganized attachment system. If the thing that nourishes me is is my ability to interact and move and touch and hear real people's voices and and look at somebody like you know even now as we're looking through Zoom, I mean which is really cool, at least I've got that. But my eyes are pretty narrowly focused. If you and I were sitting in a room together, I would be taking in much more of the periphery. I would be sitting back and my nervous system, my ventral vagal system would be in a very different state because my this, this narrow focus, the tension in my neck, the tension in my jaw that goes with talking to someone on Zoom, that's, that's the same posture as I would assume if I were orienting to danger, if I were trying to find the source of danger, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Is it that, that right? It's that narrow. And so my nervous system is now organized as if I am in relationship with something dangerous as opposed, right? Is that perception of danger? Is that about because I have just a very narrowed focus? And so that communicates danger to me? Got it. it communicates danger to my brain mm-hmm. because, right, the vagus nerve is primarily sending information from our sensory organs and, you know, from the, from up to the brain. It's primarily going from, from distal to proximal. It's coming up, even from the gut up. Some information goes from the brain out. But most of it is collecting information here. So when my muscles are tight, my brain is getting the signal of, okay, I'm in protective mode. I'm in armoring, which isn't supporting digestion. I mean, it's, it's just not, right? You don't, you don't sit down and, and eat when you're running from a bear. You just don't. So, so that link with, you know, why is this an, a, a Western-centric? I mean, is it, is that because, I mean, is that because of the technology? Is it because then the standards of beauty and the sense of conditional belonging, mm. which is so inherent in, 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 I want to say like the Judeo Christian creation myth, right? I mean, it's so embedded. There is this idea of unconditional love. But yet there's all of these conditions around what you have to do to achieve it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And our sense of belonging. I mean, our creation myth in the Judeo-Christian, the Abrahamic religions, is that we were kicked out of the garden. We, right? So there's not this, this felt sense of inherent belonging. One of the things I say to people is to, to embody belonging is an act of rebellion. And in the absence of a sense, a real sense of belonging, what do we do? We colonize. Chills. And that in some ways goes back to one of the very first things that I was saying about discovery and creation are not the same. Articulation and ownership. Because these things just are, and so am I. It just is. It's not conditional. So how does one, and if that one is a white female identified person living in 
the United States, how does one find an embodied connection, a sense of belonging in a colonized space? Asking for a friend. (laughs) One thing that I, I sometimes say is the process of change, this is kind of what you're asking, is about changing the process. Okay. And the process is often defined by our question. And your question was, how, how does your friend um, find a sense of, of belonging? Mm, like out there. Out there, right? And so the process is about finding. Okay? And just feel into how do you organize when you are trying to find something? Just feel into that. If the process of change is changing the process, and the process might be um, defined by the question we ask, right? Notice if there's any difference when the question is, how does your friend discover belonging? Mm. I mean, I think it, it goes back to what I felt as being such a game changer about acknowledging that connection is inherent, right? Like we all have it. Like if I just believe it's there to be found, if I know it's not a thing that's actually a mystery, it might or might not exist, but I know it to be true, then that is a very different process. Yeah. Okay, well, I know we just have a few more minutes, and I just, I can't even, I, this is just so beautiful. I mean, wow. Well, can I just say that the questions you asked created the space, defined the journey we went on. Mm. So thank you for the questions. The questions are so much more important than the answers. Mm. So thank you for asking those questions. Yeah. Well, let's see if we got time for this one last question, because I think... Depends on how you want this podcast to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, and literally the last question on the sheet here. So um, there's this beautiful quote that I love from Sonia Renee Taylor's book, The Body is not an apology. And she says that discrimination, social inequality, and injustice are manifestations of our inability to make peace with the body, our own, and others. Given what feels like the scope of our collective disembodiment, do you have hope that we can turn this ship around? And if so, what helps you to maintain that hope? Oh, that's beautiful. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to need to sit for just a moment. Do I have hope that we can? Yes. Okay. Yes. Do I have hope? I do have hope. <laughs> I have hope. And my hope is, is this. There are stars and there are black holes. And stars are born and black holes are born. And it happens. 
There's nothing we can do to stop that. So I believe that this process of of consciousness coming into form, stars, happens. You know, Neil deGrasse Tyson says, we're just, you know, body, we're stardust, right? And what if stars, stars are where consciousness enters the universe, right? It happens. It's this intersection of consciousness and matter. We get these little stars. It happens. And then, you know, it leaves and there are these black holes and, and we, we, you know, we're born and we die. And there's this process of embodiment that happens that is, it's beyond our control. It's going to happen. Our choice is how awake we become. How much do we wake up and, and participate in that process, right? And so I think my hope, because I see it happen all the time, I know there's an innate drive for it. it there's as much of an innate drive for that as there is for the opposite. The worst of times brings, can bring out the best in people. One of the things that um, I remember when Hurricane Katrina happened, everyone in, 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 my, in my sphere in North Carolina, you could just feel everyone just like, right? Um, by the devastation of it and, and the, the, being able to identify with the destruction of hurricanes and just like everything about it, right? Mm-hmm. And I was walking around my neighborhood and saw, like, I couldn't bring people into my house individually, but there were these empty houses in our neighborhood. And I thought, why don't, I've got a hundred families in this neighborhood. If everybody pitched in 10 bucks a month, you know, we could have a thousand dollars. We could rent a house. So put out a flyer and people were like, yeah, you know, and they were passing it on to other people. And before I knew it, I was getting checks in the mail from people who I did not know. Because they needed to do something, right? And at the same time, I was signing a lease on a house based on the promise that somebody was going to give me money because I needed to do it. And, and we ended up raising enough money to, ha- to house, to pay for housing and um, utilities we furnished two houses for the school year for families. And it was because, and people like you could see them like lighting up their humanity. They bloomed because they had this way. All I had to do was give them a way to give a way to connect. And it was, they needed it. They wanted it. Mm. Because that drive is so innate in humanity. It is our first impulse. So that's what gives me hope. Is that that's that 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 drive is there. We can't destroy it. How we organize to it, how we engage with it matters, but we don't create it or destroy it. So maybe full circle, we are built both to be nourished 
and to provide nourishment. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like what are most of the love songs about? The pain of unrequited love. Mm -hmm. I loved you. You didn't love me back. I have love to give. And when that love doesn't get to circulate, when it doesn't get to flow, it's like having a heart attack. The blood doesn't get to circulate. Mm. We And what does our heart do? It gives and receives. It gives and receives. It gives and receives. It gives and receives. That's what we're designed for. And I think it's just so important, you know, to... So I have a meditation teacher who, you know, she says it's it's great to hear the tools and the skills and to learn, but we also have to work with doubt. And to work with doubt, we need examples. We need to know what we could attain through the practice. So it's important for our teachers to share when they have powerful, important experiences, right? And so... I mean, I think for someone who has your experience, you know, who has just the years of seeing this work in action to know even that you are hopeful. I mean, I think that's what folks who are newer to the trenches, you know, like we have to have examples. So I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for your time today and for this incredible conversation. I mean, I nearly cried several times. So this is wonderful for me personally. So just thank you very much, Rachel. Thank you. Thank you for creating the time and space for the conversation. I really appreciate it, Candice. That is our show for today, folks. If you're interested in getting NVCC approved continuing education credit for listening, then head on over to www.beyondtherapy.thinkific.com. All you have to do is create an account take a test, do an eval, and then there's your credit. Also, please follow us and let us know what you think about our content today. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast. And this is Dr. Candace creaseman Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening.